Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sure, I do. I first want to say that you know one one thing I noticed in um, in your introduction was that you mentioned Anthony Broadwater before Alice Siebold, and and I think that's really important because even if you look up the most sympathetic articles um, to Anthony Broadwater. The, the headlines are always Alice Siebold, um, you know, rapist was released and just don't say his name or man accused by Alex, uh, by Alice Siebold was finally released. And that to me is just like really exemplary of even in the fact that this is his story, that this was his life that, was robbed from him. We still have, even among the sympathetic press, like this dehumanization of the accused person by not even naming him, by naming instead the false accuser as the author, you know, the famed author. And then there's this nameless person that has suffered an entire lifetime disappeared because of her. So that that was just really notable to me. This is just one paragraph. He writes... In Lucky, that day, it all got raw. If she calls him Gregory Madison, this is Anthony Broder. If Madison stood next to his friend and played a game of eyes to psych me out, then I would give it right back to him. I was authentic. I had been a virgin. Virgin, 46 times the word virgin in this book. He had broken my hymen in two places. The OBGYN, J. Marion Sims, father of gynecology, would testify to the fact I was also a good girl, that phrase in the book nine times, and I knew how to dress and what to say to accentuate that. That night following the grand jury testimony, I called Madison a motherfucker in the privacy of my dorm room while I pounded my pillow and bed with my fists. I swore the kind of bloodthirsty revenge no one thought possible coming from a 19-year-old co-ed. While still in court, I thanked the jury. I drew on my resources, performing, placating my... performing, placating, making my family smile. As I left the courtroom, I felt I had put on the best show of my life. This is a lot shorter and much more to the point about the deific victims and the crime bill. Uh, <laughs> thoughts you'd like to share, Professor Gruber? Yeah, you know, and I haven't read Lucky, but uh, but 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 reading that, I mean, there's a way to read that where you know it's almost a. It's almost like an admission, an admission kind of wrapped up in a in a, a kind of woe is me story. So the admission that's wrapped up in it is that victimhood is completely constructed. It's a performance. It's a placeholder. It's a placeholder for so many things, 
for racial anxiety, for, you know, vindicating your worth, for understanding women. So I think like one of the points she could have been making is like, why should I have to be a virgin? I had to perform virginity, right? But like, it's, it's ironic because the whole, the whole victims' rights movement and the whole idea of, you know, sort of communing with victims is constructed from the outset. So it could include virgin or, or it cannot include virgin, but it still has parameters. And throughout our American history, these parameters have been that certain people aren't eligible for victimhood, right? Like, so when you think about rape, like, by law or lack of law, like, during enslavement, black women couldn't be victims. Right? That was just part of life for them, like rape. Um, and then that sort of inability to be a victim gets inscribed onto black women. Um, and then, you know, in terms of, like, people who are the perpetrators, it's still much easier, even though that has opened up a little with, with Me Too, it's still much easier for people to see, you know, men of color um, or people they, they, that look deviant or are poor, you know, as rapists or as offenders um, to bring stereotypes into who they see as um, domestic violence offenders and who they see as good guys. You didn't think I was going to forget Rick James again, did you? No way. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade and for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, February 28, 2022. So I have been told wrap up Black History Month both with Anthony Broadwater, Lucky, and Rick James, who was immensely helpful uh, in us reading that text for the book club. Uh, today's program, The Cow's Book Club, I can only say, like, wow. Reading, way more important than watching television. Way, way. Uh, we read Lucky, written by Alice Siebold, <clears throat> finished it up. But like, what was that? About four weeks ago, uh, we pushed off to a new text. We'll be starting a new book, I think, next week uh, or maybe two weeks uh, from now. We'll be starting a new book. But 10 years, Cal's Book Club. Hopefully we have read some uh, interesting, informative titles. Uh, Lucky is in there for many of the wrong reasons. We are so on time with today's broadcast. Wow. I mean, whew sparkle context of white supremacy as we have for maybe 13 years so today is february 28 2022 on february 25 2022 syracuse.com and they've had amazing journalism covering the case of alice Bold's uh, alleged rape uh and book lucky the exoneration of anthony broadwater who is referenced by the pseudonym gregory madison in the memoir but just literally three days ago syracuse.com had a report written alice Bold rape 
Anthony Broadwater sues New York seeking $50 million for wrongful conviction. Anthony Broadwater is suing New York State seeking $50 million for unjust imprisonment after spending 16 and a half years in prison and decades on the sex offender registry in the 1981 rape of Alice Siebold, a crime he did not commit. Broadwater, now 61, of Syracuse was exonerated on November 22, 2021 in a Syracuse courtroom a story that made headlines worldwide. Siebold, who was raped as a freshman at Syracuse University, became the best-selling author of The Lovely Bones, which I believe our guest has also reviewed that book, after launching her career with a memoir, Lucky, in 1999, about her efforts to bring her rapist to justice. She now admits that her actions, including identifying Broadwater as her attacker, led to the wrong man to be punished. Broadwater filed his lawsuit Friday in the state court of claims, which handles lawsuits against the state. He's also putting the Ondaga County District Attorney's Office and the city of Syracuse police on notice of a future second lawsuit specifically accusing county prosecutors and city police of egregious misconduct. Mm. I hope he gets 50 billion with a B. He didn't even have children. Remember we talked about that? Last thing I'll say or thing I'll read before we get to our guest for today, because really all we're doing today is a literary review of Lucky. Because again, what you heard, they used the book Lucky in the process to exonerate Mr. Broadwater, a.k.a. Gregory Madison. So this is just a chat about Lucky today. But <clears throat> an important chat because there is a reporter. Uh, her name is uh, Johanna Berkman. Uh, she wrote an article, Why Didn't More of Us Question Alice Siebold's Memoir? Not going to read the full report, just two paragraphs. In a more <laughs> have to share one name. So Timothy Musianti is the white man who was working uh, on the film. They were going to make the book Lucky into a movie. And he was a part of the team that was that process. He read the book and said, eh, same thing we did. Eh, I got questions about this. He decided to investigate and ended up joining the team to exonerate Mr. Broadwater. And now they're making a documentary titled Unlucky about Mr. Broadwater's experience. But I've been taught he found out about our book club. Specifically, he found out I have been trying to get my hands on either the video or the transcript of Alice Ebold's visit to the Oprah Winfrey program. She was a guest and talking about her rape and all that being a survivor. Man, I want to see the footage and then I want to see what does Oprah Winfrey have to say now? Get Mr. Broadwater on your program and, you know, help him get $50 billion in compensation. Anywho, so Timothy Musianti, 
white man who was very important in correcting all of this. And again, he didn't do anything special. He just did what we're, we're doing today. He read the memoir Lucky and asked logical questions. So Johanna Berkman, she writes, in a more just world, Anthony Broadwater would never have needed Timothy Musianti as his savior. But in the real world, asking the justice system to believe in a black man's innocence to take his word over a white woman's is too often too much to ask. If only the system had eventually taken Siebold at her word, her written ones, that is, with over a million copies of Lucky sold and even a new edition published in 2017, no one until Musianti seems to have taken action to investigate Siebold's story. Combine, oh, lost my place, to investigate Siebold's story. Uh, I picked up, oh, she mentioned it two times. What does this say about American literary culture and of the historically largely white publishing industry? The rewind and Gus insert on that is the largely white female publishing industry no patriarchy there that is white women dominated but that's another program following the news of Broadwater's exoneration I picked up a copy of the 2017 paperback edition of Lucky to try to understand how Musianti saw what so many others hadn't apparently at least a million hadn't staggering rallying around a survivor in order to support them is a good thing but it is the lack of critical thinking with regard to Siebold's story combined with a justice system eager to incarcerate black men that resulted in grave consequences for Anthony Broadwater the consequence for Siebold paltry though it is by comparison is that she and her story will now be regarded as symbolic of the racism inherent in our justice system that's Johanna Berkman why didn't more of us question Alice Siebold's memoir our guest for uh, today's broadcast she wrote two separate reviews of Lucky referenced this book as one of the best she's ever read in her life I said wow I would love to chat it up about this book see what she thinks in fact she wrote two to see why it was even worth two reviews and and if she has any thoughts going back and kind of rereading it checking it over talking about it with us she was glad to oblige to speak with us so happy to have her on the broadcast she writes book reviews many many of them you can visit her blog for the novel lovers dot wordpress dot com you can read uh, she actually has reviews of all of Alice Siebold's books 
and many others who to have her on the program with us joining us live for her this morning uh miss jody cook uh miss cook are you with us ma'am yes i am awesome so happy to have you with us for you uh this is technically tuesday morning so thanks so much for sharing a bit of your early early tuesday morning uh, I guess before we get started, anything that you would like to share with our listeners about who you are, what part of the world uh, you're in, and the work that you do briefly? Um, I'm from South Wales in the United Kingdom. Um, I'm a university student currently studying Japanese, um, and I've always had a fascination and a love for reading um, from a very early age. Um, and lately I found myself branching out into far more diverse topics and subjects. Right on, right on. Uh, so you're in South Wales, United Kingdom currently? Yes. Okay, okay, right on, right on. Studying Japanese, wow, wow. Any particular motivation for that or just curious? Uh, I wanna teach English abroad. Ah, I see, I see, okay. Are you classified as a white woman? Yes, I am. Okay. Uh, let's see. Before we get to the book, uh, every time uh, we have guests on the program, regardless of where they are in the world, I make sure to give out my definition of racism. I use the term racism and white supremacy as synonyms, and I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Oh, most definitely. Right on, right on. Okay. Global system, ladies and gentlemen. Um, let's see quickly before I get to some of the text, cause I'm so excited to have so many questions. And since we read this book in our book club, some of the listeners I'm sure will have some questions as well. Um, for our mom in Michigan, she used to ask this one all the time. Who do you, uh, Ms. Cook, who do you think is more confused about what racism is, how it works. Do you think non-white people are more confused about those details or do you think white people are more confused about those details? Well, I think white people are definitely more confused by it. Um, I come from quite a large family myself, varying many generations, and I can ask the question to each and every person, you know, can you define racism? And I will get a different answer off every single person. Are these like white people that you're talking about that they would give you yeah, a different? You know, my family, my friends, you know, students I study with, um, they will all give me different definitions. Mm. Whereas if I asked a person of color, um, they would give a more unified definition um, because they understand it, they live it on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and I think in recent history, um, with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, 
you know, we're being educated as white people on what people of colour are living through and have lived through. When your white family members or white friends, white people that you talk to, when they give a definition about racism, does their definition suggest that anybody, including non-white people, can practice racism? Do their, does their definition suggest that white people also are victims of racism? Uh, yes, in a way, obviously. Um, if you look at the dictionary definition of racism, um, it's discrimination based on race. Um, that can be black people, white people, whatever race you, you are, you can be discriminated against. But I do think there is a huge percentage of people who um, experience racism that are people of color. And white privilege has been a thing for a very long time and it still exists today. Just pointing out for our listeners, I certainly uh, on this program have never used the term uh, white privilege. I said white supremacy racism uh, and just within the context of the definition it's been my experience that many times white people lie in fact that's the primary method of maintaining the global system of white supremacy racism so a lot of times when these white people give out these definitions that are goofy or seem like you know white people are victims of racism this is being done deliberately but Definitely. That is one to uh, ponder on uh, before we get to lucky, because you mentioned it within the report. The only reason I'm bringing it up is because it is uh, super important for the book that we're discussing today. And you write about it in both of your uh, reviews. Uh, you are a victim of sexual abuse. Is that correct, Miss Cook? Yes, I have been through both sexual assault and I've been raped. So I have a very personal connection with the story that Alice Sewold uh, writes about. And it's uh, just a very personal thing for me, which is why I picked it up in the first place. Right on. Courageous. Uh, be able to speak about that sort of thing publicly. Um, was this like a suggestion in terms of, you know, this this could be part of your catharsis for healing? Or were you kind of searching out material resources to kind of read or... No, I'd never really delved into memoirs or nonfiction in general. At the time, I was primarily a fiction reader, um, and I had a reader friend who very much loves her nonfiction. Uh, and she read it, and she said, um, basically, I thought of you, and um, you might see a bit of your own story in this. Um, and so I picked it up just on a recommendation. I see. I see. The person who recommended it, was it uh, was an American or somebody in the UK? No, it was my very close friend in the UK. Oh, okay. Okay. One million copies. Um, she said she thought you would relate to it. Was your Were your attackers, because you said that you were raped and subject to some other form of sexual abuse, were your, was one of your attackers or were your attackers plural uh, black males? Uh, no, in both of my cases, they were white, middle-aged men. I see, I see. Did you know these people? Uh, one of them, yes. One of them, no. Okay. Uh, let's see. Where, I guess the last one before I get to 
the book or I guess the big one. Did you, did you follow? Because when I wrote, I checked your, there's so many people who wrote reviews about this book, million copies sold lucky. Uh, and I, if I can talk to them all, man, if I have enough time on the, on the planet earth, they are all welcome to come sit and chat about this here text because there's so much to chat about, about what did everybody miss for a million copies sold? Uh, you are outside the States. Uh, so I said, Hmm, this might be really interesting because it might not be big news there that some black male was exonerated from a crime that he was convicted of 40 years ago. So did you know that Gregory Madison, his real name is Anthony Broadwater. Did you know he was exonerated at the end of last year and that they used uh Siebold's book lucky as a part of the, they didn't even bring out new evidence. They used her book and all the evidence that they had before to show that this was a total miscarriage of justice and he was exonerated for this crime. Were you aware of this? Uh, no, I wasn't. Not at all. It's not been reported on the British news. Um, I had no idea um, until you emailed me and mentioned about um, Anthony Broadwater's exoneration. I then had to go and look it up on the Internet um, and found that it happened at the end of last year. And I had absolutely no idea. What were your thoughts once you looked online and as you I'm not misquoting you wrote that this was one of the best books you ever read and then until I just uh, messaged her a few weeks back so this is super recent and she wrote two reviews on Lucky what were your thoughts when you read like oh wow (laughs) he's been exonerated and they used this book as a part of the exoneration well you know, the second I got your email, I looked it up and I read quite a few articles from numerous um, different websites. And I was absolutely stunned um, that obviously they've used her book as evidence in court um, to exonerate him. And he was. And I was just absolutely baffled. Well, we will chat it up about how you were baffled and why this was one of the best books you've ever read, which I mean, wow, that is whoo cows listeners. I guess you all can come to your own thoughts. People who hung in and we had quite a few folks like, wow, the engagement we had on that book was incredible. But yeah, let's just get through. We'll make time and get to the questions. Let's see. Um, were you compensated to write any of the reviews for Lucky because you wrote two of them? Or did you just do all that voluntarily? No, it's all voluntary. Um, yes, sometimes I do receive copies from the publisher or from the author. Um, but I'm never compensated as in monetary value. Um, and never from a big name author like Alice Sibold. I see. Uh, why did you write uh, two separate uh, reviews of Lucky? Uh, I believe there was quite a big time gap between my readings of them. Um, and obviously I've grown up um, a bit since then. I've matured, hopefully, as a person. Um, and I just wanted to see if my view on it, my take on it had changed um, as I've dealt with my own personal experience. Um, and yeah, that was really why I reread it and wrote um, a second review for it. Hmm. Maybe after this broadcast, there should be a third 
uh, review, like read it again and write a third review about what in the world, what did we all miss? Uh, let's they're see. Most, they most likely will be. Love it. With all this new information. Love it. Love it. Um, so, and you, I guess, are a Seabold fan uh, because you read The Lovely Bones and Almost Moon, uh, some of her uh, other offerings, and you said that this is the favorite of the three, uh, and she's one of your favorite authors. So I guess we'll start. What specifically is so appealing about the writing of Alice Seabold? Um, I think just in terms of her writing style, it's very lyrical. It's very easy to read. Um, for a long time, I debated on whether Lucky or The Lovely Bones was my favorite. Um, but obviously having such a close personal connection to the events that take place in Lucky, um, that just won out for me personally. Um, but yeah, I've read her three main works um, and I have really enjoyed them from uh, a recreational perspective. Wow. Um, mm, that's fast. We'll come back to put a pin in Lovely Bones. We'll come back to that one. Uh, with Lucky specifically, and for listeners, this was published in 1999, even though it's discussing her rape, which pff, said it repeatedly, I have serious questions about that even, but this alleged rape from 1981, and she publishes the memoir in 1999, it was almost made into a movie in 2022. <sighs> Just what we need. Um, you wrote in your review, you said that, you know, this this book is great and it's, it's honest. You know, she's, she's honest in what she's talking about with regards to her rape and the trial. Um, did you take time to verify any of the information that she presents in lucky? Uh, the first time around, no, I just took it at face value. I did look into the original trial, um, a bit more for my second reading of it, but I didn't do any, um, long-term dedicated research on, the actual facts um, and I think that's why so many people including myself are stunned by recent events because um, we just don't look into the actual facts behind the novels and, and the books because um, we just assume that the person writing them especially on such horrific um, things is is telling the truth Uh, Tawana Brawley's name was just mentioned on the context of white supremacy and that no count Al Sharpton. Uh, they definitely were not assumed to be telling the truth. Uh, this is definitely one where in a system of white supremacy, a white woman writing about being raped by a black male. Oh, yeah, we definitely <laughs> even many non-white people. With a, in fact, I didn't even find a whole lot of non-white people. Maybe they didn't read this book, but it seems like even some non-white people read this book. And, yep, no count Anthony Broadwater raped her or Gregory Madison. No count black male raped her. Yep. Like, that's how powerful the system of white supremacy is. Um, even, in fact, beyond white supremacy racism, the title of this book is Lucky. Siebel says she got that title because, allegedly, she was raped by this black male. And the police told her that she was lucky 
because a woman was raped and dismembered in the same area. Do you remember that, Miss Cook, at, at the very beginning of the book? Yeah, I remember that very clearly. Did you pause, say, wow, that's amazing. I wonder who that was. Did you make any efforts to do some digging to find out who that was? Uh, I didn't dig into it um, really at all. I just kind of read it and sat there for a moment and thought, well, you know, if someone did die there, then, you know, she would be very lucky indeed. Um, and just continued reading. Hmm. We read, and I guess I should add, we read this. Uh, we actually had the audiobook of Alice Siebold narrating her own work, which was fascinating to hear, you know, how she tells this. Anywho, um, and I guess we read this after the exoneration. And as a black male reading this, oh my, <laughs> we're investigating everything. There's no presumption that you're being truthful with anything. That's a pretty horrendous crime. Like to have somebody be killed and dismembered. I've been searching for, let's see, we started that. It's been more than two months in two months. I have not found one case of a female being dismembered in that area of the Syracuse campus. I found one case, Nancy Joe Skamar, and that's another one like for real, for real. If Alice Seabold really cares about victims and all that, put a name on it. That would have ended this whole discussion. Anywho, uh, one name. Nancy Joe Scamara and this case happened after Alice Siebel, so they wouldn't be telling her about a case that happened in the future. I haven't been able to find one case. I don't believe that. This is serious. This is a major university in the United States. They didn't have the internet and all that at that time, but I mean, hey, at this point, they're going back and writing and cold cases and all of that. I think if, particularly if this was a white woman, they would have done an unsolved mysteries on this. A uh, hard copy, uh, America's Most Wanted. There would be something. It would not just be oh, never mentioned. I even have doubts about that. Um, if anybody out there can get a confirmation, who was this? What is this case? What's the person's name? Until uh, until I get any of that data, I'm just gonna go with the assumption that she lied even from the very beginning because there's so much dishonesty within the whole work. Uh, but we still don't have that. So maybe someone was dismembered. Maybe not. We'll see. Um, did you find like the book lucky overall? Did you find it believable? Like the rape, the identification, just like we'll get into specifics, but just overall, did you, you found this believable what she said? Yeah. From my first reading it and rereading it from the way she discusses, um, the rape, the details she remembers, the way she acted, um, the way she felt and thought during the trial process. It all seemed, um, obviously, with the differences between countries, very similar to what I actually went through myself. Um, so I had no reason to believe that it was, you know, she wasn't being honest about it, that she wasn't being truthful, because it all seemed completely legitimate to me reading it on a surface level. Hmm. Okay. 
we'll get into the details. Uh, she gives a scene like very beginning of the book, right after the rape and she's back uh, on campus at Syracuse university and a black student, black male student comes in and he's crying and it's kind of awkward. And he kind of feels like he has to apologize for his race uh, since it was a black guy who did this. What did you, what did you make of that scene? That scene to this day makes me very uncomfortable. Um, Purely because, you know, whether you're a black man or white man, whatever, you should not have to apologize for the actions of someone else of your race. Um, it makes me very uncomfortable that he just felt the need that he had to apologize to her on behalf of this other man. Um, just makes me feel, yeah, a bit uncomfortable. Many aspects of the text, uh, uncomfortable uh, for many reasons. That was another one where I kind of had to pin. It certainly could have happened. Um, I mean, I, that that sort of conduct is required uh, from victims of racism regularly for us to feel bad or to be made to feel guilt or shame for the actions of another non-white person where this sort of thing never happens with white people, where they're not shamed for the conduct of other white people. Uh, but that was even another one where I had to put a pin in like, really, do I think this happened? It certainly could have, but eh. put a pin down there as well. Um, when, so she gets allegedly she's raped. She goes to the police station. Nothing happens for five months until the identification will really slow down and get into some of those details in the interim. Uh, this happens at the end of the semester in 1981, May. She goes home. Even <sighs> I have to come back to the tunnel scene for the rape thing. I'll pin in that one, too. Uh, she goes home with her parents and they go to pick up her sister at UPenn. And she talks about vividly. They're in the car. They're driving through Philadelphia. They see black guys out on the street. Her dad calls them animals. What are these animals doing out on the corners? And she talks about feeling nervous because she sees some black guys. Like, oh, no. Oh, no. She's going through this trauma from the incident. Now, within this, she also talks about seeing white guys. They're in fraternities. They don't have a shirt on. They're out drinking beer. They've moved furniture out. Doesn't call them animals or anything. Just an observation that they're there. When they get to UPenn, she talks about seeing some sort of graffiti on the elevator about a gang rape and all of this. They go about their business. And she says, you know, I have to talk to my dad about his uh, racist comments about black people being animals. So I have to talk to him about that later and, and educate him. Um, what did you think of that whole scene following the rape where she references? It seems like we talked about this in detail. Was she talking about everybody and all that? I concluded she was talking about the black guys where it was her having fear. And then her dad was talking specifically about the black guys when he referenced them as animals. What did you make of that scene? And it, did you think that's who the dad was talking about? Was talking about the black guys calling them animals? Oh, yes. When I read that scene, um, it clearly has racist um, tones uh, to it from both uh, Alice Sebald and her father. And it's something that actually differed from my experience um, because my experience, it wasn't just 
uh, other white men like the ones uh, that raped me that I was afraid of. It was all men. Um, anyone who was similar in looks, in age, in class background, I was afraid of. Um, you know, it was all men for me. And it took me a long time and a lot of therapy to deal with that and be able to move forward from that. So it felt a little off, um, you know. And I was like, it could have, it could be what it was like at the time. Obviously, I wasn't alive um, around 1981. Um, so I wasn't around then, but it seemed off to me that it wasn't, it was focused on the racial element rather than the gender element. That was something I think we pointed out. I know I did as well. Uh, and I think we had other females who dialed in uh, and said, hey, I think this would be just kind of a gender specific. Like, I'm not comfortable being around males, period. White, non-white, I'm not comfortable. Not black male specific. And I mean, particularly if you're seeing males who are out being rowdy and don't have a shirt on and drinking and all the rest of it, I would think like some concern. No. And then even her dad, it's just focused to the black man. I, that was my reading of it too. total racism. And she even has to explain this. That was how I justified it or evidenced it is that she felt she had to talk to him like you're being racist, dad. Like I need to, you know, don't say that sort of thing. Don't call them animals um, in the and then conversely with the black males being referred to as animals and dehumanized like Anthony Broadwater. He gets this pseudonym, but he's not even called Gregory Madison for most of the book. Most of the tech, he's just referred to as the rapist. Um, she, Alice Siebold uses the term virgin in the book or some derivative virginity 46 times. Uh, we talked about some of that in the introduction with Aya Gruber, where she talked about the performance aspect of being a victim and particularly performing for a white woman, the victim of some sort of sex crime against a black male. I harped on that from the very beginning and saying, wow, this is an extraordinary emphasis on I'm a virgin. I, I'm a white virgin. I'm a white virgin. Did I tell you I'm a virgin virgin for any, that's even one of the sentences one time where it's virgin, virgin, virgin. Um, did the use and her emphasis and focus on her being a virgin and you're a female too. So this would be great to get your perspective. Did that stand out to you or did you think that that was normal for someone to be thinking in that manner at her age, her time period, being a female? I think, um, being a young woman, I think there is uh, emphasis placed on virginity and how you lose your virginity um, that does have an impact on the rest of your life. But the way she performs, uh, especially during the trial, if you feel you need to perform uh, to a prosecutor, to a jury, to a judge, um, then honestly, I believe you're hiding something. In in my experience with my own court case, um, I had to tell my story once. Um, yes, it was gone over and I was asked questions about it and asked to clarify uh, certain elements. 
but I didn't have to perform to the police, to uh, the prosecutors, to none of that. I, I wasn't expected to perform. It was just tell me your story and we'll take the evidence and go from there. Um, so the fact she felt she needed to perform and project this uh, virginal, uh, virginal good girl um, face to the world tells me she wasn't being um, genuine about that, that it wasn't the kind of person she really was. Interesting. You used the phrase good girls. A listener asked, hey, Gus, how many times is that phrase in the book? The phrase good girls is in lucky nine times. That sort of thing sticks out to me, kind of enforcing the point that was just made. Like, do you have to tell me every other chapter that you're a good girl and a virgin? Every other page that you're a virgin. Um, the Syracuse.com, they did phenomenal work uh, on this, their, their report. Alice Seabold case, how racist should say racism, white supremacy and incompetence doomed Anthony Broadwater to prison. I just will say flat out, they've done great work, but this is a terrible title. This was not incompetence in no way, shape, form. This is white supremacy racism, period. But they write, this is all about uh, Alice Seabold and virginity. Uh, Douglas Dowdy, Tim Naus, they write at several points during the trial. Mastine, he's one of the prosecutors, emphasized that Seabold was a virgin. Broadwater's lawyers would later describe that in legal papers as an attempt to play up racial aspects of the case, the white female victim's virginity lost to her black rapist. Mastine argued at the trial that Seabold was more likely to remember her rapist's appearance accurately, which she did not, because she was a virgin. This girl, a freshman at Syracuse University, was in fact a virgin, Mastine said in his closing summary. The details of the attack would stand out in her mind, Mastine said, maybe even more so than a person who has had some previous sexual experience. Two months later, at the sentencing, the prosecutor again raised the point this time as a reason for Broadwater to receive the maximum prison term. Seabold was a virgin. And I think the sentencing ought to go along with the seriousness of the crime committed against this young lady, Mastine said. Gorman sentenced Broadwater to the maximum eight and one third to 25 years. He served 16 and a half and again, Part of his 16 and a half sentence was because he wouldn't admit that he raped Alice Siebold. They say that repeatedly in the reports. If he had just admitted that he did it, he could have got out sooner. Disgraceful all the way. Do you have any thoughts about this emphasis of white virginity, even in the trial process? It's, it's so difficult. Um, for me because obviously I didn't go through um, a trial like that being a minor at the time um, so my trial obviously took place in a very different format um, but the fact that it's 
repeatedly used and brought up, it's almost like they're trying to hammer the point home. Like, for me, obviously, because I was a minor, um, my virginity was implied. It was never explicitly spoken about or stated. Um, and it was never repeatedly done. Um, and if it was, I know for a fact that I would have had something to say about that and my my family members would have as well. Um, it's just, it's very disingenuous to me to hammer the point home like that. Disingenuous. That is a great word uh, or feeling that I had around this entire so-called memoir. I don't even call it that normally. Uh, disingenuous. Context of white supremacy. Uh, discussing Alice Siebold's book, Lucky, uh, with our guest from the UK, Jody Cook. Um, for this one, I'm just taking the question right from the study guide uh, that they have. This is if you get the updated edition uh, of Lucky, the 2017, they have study guide questions. So their study guide question number nine is discuss Alice's failure to identify Gregory Madison, a.k.a. Anthony Broadwater in the police lineup. Does it seem fair to you that he was able to enlist a lookalike friend to frighten and intimidate Alice. Is it fair that, as Alice's lawyer puts it, rights are weighted on the side of the defendant? I wanted to vomit when I looked back at this question earlier today. Um, number one, just for listeners, people who didn't read, so the, the lineup that they're talking about, as it's written in the book, Siebel tells us that they have a lineup. Anthony Broadwater is number four. She picks number five. They come to tell her, you pick number five, you pick the wrong person. Darn. Their way of explaining this, because generally for trials, that is it. If you can't even pick out who did this, we don't have a trial. Goodbye. You know, we'll see what we can do. They say, not so fast, that no-count raping Anthony Broadwater. Let me tell you what he did. He got his friend to come in here and give you the stank eye. And then he looked all sad and mopey and everything so you could pick the wrong person. That's basically what she says in the book. And my, I mean, I'm, I can't even say I'm being silly. That's a summary of what she says in the book. Is it not, Miss Cook? Yeah, that's pretty accurate, yes. Let me rewind. So the question I asked you before, this is believable. You read this the first time through and that seemed believable to you. Without doing any uh, research into anything behind it, just reading it purely on a surface level for entertainment. Um, it did seem completely believable to me. As a white woman, do you think that could be an act of white supremacy, racism, consciously, subconsciously? You reading and just taking at face value that this lying, raping nigra did this to fool this white woman at the lineup? Obviously, I would say consciously, no, I don't. I try my very hardest in all situations to um, completely disregard race, especially when it comes to criminal situations. 
Um, but unconsciously, um, being obviously a white woman, there is probably some unconscious element there because I've been in a position my entire life of white privilege. I've never had to go through any of the things a lot of uh, black people and black communities have ever had to go through. I've never been put in those situations. Um, and obviously, without having that experience, that knowledge, I took it at complete face value. Second time the word white privilege is used. That might be another act of white supremacy racism because that is also minimizing what we're talking about. Um, but I mean, the only way that I can even process that halfway logically, and especially you telling us that you yourself are a survivor of rape and sexual abuse, that you can read that. And that seems lot. I mean, matter of fact, let me stop. Let me go back and read some of the reporting from Syracuse.com. Cause many people talk about this lineup situation. Like, Hey, everything should have stopped right there. No trial. Thanks for playing. You can't even pick the matter of fact, let me get my sound clip on and then we can get because in the book, the way that they explain all this is just, hey, they look like twins. Did you see the lineup photograph? Because they have that at Syracuse Staff Com. Did you see the, the lineup from 1981 that she looked at? No, I haven't seen any of the pictures of the lineup. Um, <sighs> and obviously that's not something I've ever been a part of um, with having to identify someone that way. Um, so obviously I've never even heard of it really done in the UK. Um, so I'm, I just was just taking it as maybe, you know, these lineups are an American thing because um, I've never really heard of them myself personally or from people close to me. It may happen, but I, I don't know in that situation. Hmm. The lineup photo is available online. We looked at it while we were reading it. Let me, one, get my sound effect in because this was where they just said, hey, these two Negras are twins. We're looking for two Negroes in a white car. Any two will do? You said all Blacks in look alike. And you said all in words. That's right. Sure did. Nigger! Mm. So Syracuse.com, they say... Uh, before the grand jury convened, Ebelair spoke with Siebold about the lineup. According to the author's account in Lucky, if the book is accurate, and Fitzpatrick said Siebold told him by email that it was true to her memory of events, Ebeler, Ebeler's conduct was problematic at best. Broadwater's attorneys use stronger language they call it prosecutorial misconduct, an ethical breach that could potentially bring sanctions. According to the book, Ebelair coached Siebold after the lineup in a way that seemed designed to bolster her confidence that Broadwater was the right guy. Ebelair told her that Broadwater and Hudson had conspired to trick her into choosing the wrong person. Siebold wrote, of course, you chose the wrong one. Ebeler is quoted as saying he and his attorney worked to make sure you never have a chance. 
Ebeler went on to tell Siebold that Broadwater and Hudson were friends who used each other in every lineup they do to confuse victims according to the book. They're dead ringers. We're looking for two Negroes in a white car. Any two will do? You said all black in, alike. And you said all in words. That's right. Sure did. Nigger! In fact, Broadwater had never been in a lineup before. During a recent interview, Hudson said he did not know Broadwater before meeting him at the jail. Ebelair helped Siebold with the research for Lucky according to the book. Ebelair did not respond to multiple requests for comment for this story. Fitzpatrick said the post lineup conversation would have been clearly improper. Siebold's trouble with identification should have been a warning that evidence was lacking, not a nuisance to be explained away. Syracuse.com, great reporting on this. I mean, just <laughs> sanctions against the attorney. I mean, to be able to flat out lie. That's why I said, like, I just have to ask questions about everything about this because there's so many points where that's all I can, can unless you can miss cook, unless you can come up with something more logical than the attorney's someone they just came up with a flat lie practice racism we'll lie we're not even concerned about making sure we get the correct person we're just gonna lie and say it's you and that's that is there am i missing something do you have a better more logical explanation than this is just racism and lying to wrongfully convict mr broadwater oh i completely agree that it's flat out racism and they did lie and i also have a lot of questions about alice's um, recollection of her rapist um, for many different reasons um, that I've learned through therapy and uh, looking into the psychology of what happens to a woman um, before, during and after she's raped. Um, I have major questions about whether she would have been able to identify him even if the rapist was in that lineup. They uh, used hair evidence that was talked about. I don't know if you heard, but I mean, for years, uh, that was something that stood out as well. When I saw that they exonerated him, that they said they had a hair match. And they'd said, I think around 2015, even before that, they had been saying like, ooh, it looks like there's a problem. And then in 2015, there started to be huge reports saying, oh, wow, there are like hundreds of these cases where we've convicted people and all this hair match nonsense is just that pseudoscientific bs this is one of those cases where they said oh yeah we got a hair match with uh anthony broadwater and it's definitely him wrong uh like when you start looking it's like what evidence exactly did you have to convict him you said virgin a lot hair evidence that's nonsense and an identification where you lied did you have any actual evidence that he committed a crime yeah that is a question um that i had because obviously, um, I, as I said, I'm well into my reading and I like my true crime documentaries. So I've watched quite a few um, based pre 
1987, where DNA became very big in criminal cases. Um, so obviously I knew that wasn't a thing. DNA wouldn't have been a thing back then. Um, yes, they could type match, but obviously there's four major blood types and that encompasses everyone. Um, so even if you have one of the rarer blood types, that's still encompassing a huge number of people. And obviously hair typing, even you know, uh, in the 90s, 2000s, well onwards, it's been shown that it's virtually useless. So physical evidence-wise, they had absolutely nothing. Lies of a white woman. Uh, <sighs> the poem. There's so many things about this book that just stand out the white supremacy racism uh, in the middle of the book Alice Seabold writes uh, a poem uh, what if they caught you uh, where she fantasizes about uh, what she would do to Anthony Broadwater if she were to catch him uh, and she talks about uh, slicing out his eyes and castrating him and killing him slowly shooting him through the kneecap all of this gruesome torture uh, what was your response to, to reading this poem in Lucky? Uh, I had two major reactions to it, and they are quite different. Um, on my second reading, when I was far older, I, I was quite disgusted by it. Um, but when I first read it, um, I was quite a lot, bit younger. Um, and it did match up with kind of the feelings I had about my own rapist, um, after he was caught and even though he was convicted and sent to prison I still had these feelings were a bit like you know if I could get my hands on you I would do far worse than put you in a cell um, so I kind of empathized with that you know because I had felt that myself that even if they are caught and sent to prison it doesn't feel like enough punishment at the time um, but as an adult, looking back on it and reading it, it was, can you really think and truly feel that about another person without being an evil person yourself? Is there, uh, to your recollection, because there is a rapist and murderer uh, in The Lovely Bones, uh, do you recall any scene uh, or a moment of, of retribution where any of the characters talk about uh, chopping off the penis uh, or killing the white rapist killer in The Lovely Bones? Uh, I haven't read it in a long time, but not that I can recall. I uh, may not be in the book, but in the movie, there are offhand comments that the father makes um, about wanting to kill the man uh, that killed his daughter. Um, but at, at that point in the movie, he, he doesn't know it's, you know, the white man living down the road. He's still a faceless, nameless being in the father's mind. Um, but no, I don't think there are descriptions anywhere near as graphic as that in The Lovely Bones. Mm. That was a major point as well. And. And also the other thing was that because it's so graphic, as you said, she talks literally about slicing out uh, 
Anthony Broadwater's eyeballs, uh, slifing off his genitals, shooting him through the kneecap, all of this torture. And I said, man, uh, again, we're in a system of white supremacy. All of these things have been done. And I mean, like ritualistically. So to black males for this very crime. In fact, I said, Hey, in my view, this book, it's all about racism, white supremacy. That's all you're telling me. Every other page, white virgin woman raped by black male, white virgin woman raped by black male. I was a good girl, white virgin woman raped by that's every page. That's this whole book. And this poem, it's like you want to harken back to the good old days where this is what we can do. This is how we handle Negro males who are accused of this crime. We go out and we have us a lynching. We do some cash trading. We chop out their eye. Emmett Till. They chopped out his eyeballs. Are you familiar with Emmett Till? Is that name familiar or no? No, not to me. Oh, okay. Wow. Well, maybe you can look that up at some point. A young teenage black male, very famous case uh, here in the States, a 14 year old black male who was uh, lynched for whistling allegedly at a white woman. Uh, But he wasn't just killed. Alice Siebold's poem. They cut out his eyes. They gashed open his skull. They shot him. They tied a cotton gin around his throat and threw him in the river. Couldn't just kill him. Alicebo, we got to torture you for violating a white woman. That's why I said this is this poem is hearkening back to this long tradition. This is not just abstract or dreaming. This is the history of white supremacy, racism. That poem would have been acted out against Anthony Broadwater if this event had happened maybe 20 years previously, 25 years previously, this could have been done. In fact, she could have been invited to the front to do exactly what she said. That's what I thought was so important about the poem section was that this is not just abstract or maybe this might. There is a long, they have books written about this sort of thing happening over and over and over. And I mean, exactly as she described it. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's just absolutely shocking. Um, Wow. (laughs) How could someone even write about that, knowing that it's actually happened to real people? It just absolutely stuns me. I don't think Alice Siebold was ignorant. I mean, she's in school. She brags about her parents being scholars, her dad teaching at UPenn. She could have been a student there just like her sister. So this is not a ignorant family uh, where they don't know yeah. anything about racism, white supremacy. She's at a major university. So I think they probably, I suspect everyone in her household, if you said, do you know who Emmett Till is? Oh, yeah. A plus. What do you need to know? Mississippi, 1954. We got it. What do you need to know? Greenwood, Mississippi, Carolyn Bryant Dunham. We got it. What do you need to know? Uh, and the hearkening back, because there's so many points in the book where I say, oh, wow, this is hearkening back to earlier periods of white supremacy, racism, her poem, which I just say, this is a lynching poem. Her use of the term Negro 
and negroid. And in fact, she used the term negroid to describe the hairs that allegedly match. And then she includes the police report where she refers to Anthony Broadwater raped by a negro male. Did her use of those terms, Negro and Negroid, did that stand out in any way to you? And this will be interesting because of where you are geographically, but did that stand out or was that not really significant to you? Yeah, that really stood out to me um, because here in the UK, um, they're not terms we use really at all, um, unless you're looking at historical um, historical elements of things. They're, they're not used in any sort of modern context and it literally um, when I was reading it I was like it's making me really uncomfortable to see these words all the time um, because they don't have a very nice connotation to them Um, they're always linked to racism and violence and persecution of black people and the black community Um, And it just makes you feel a bit sick, being honest, to read them page after page after page. You know, you you get to the point where you're like, just call him anything else but those words because you're making me feel ill um, to use them in the manner you're using them. You did say this is one of the best books that you ever read. Yeah, um, but obviously new information has come to light. Um, I've done a lot of research on it, uh, thinking about things just from a different perspective. It's, yeah, it's very, makes me feel quite ill. (laughs) Mm. The word Negro and Negroid uh, was in there way before Mr. Broadwater's exoneration. Um, The... She references herself several times throughout the text as a freak uh, and even a super freak. Uh, what did you make when she's her roommate, when she's moving into Syracuse? She thinks that her parents are kind of judging her like, oh, my goodness, you know, how did our daughter end up with this super freak? What did you what did you make of her referencing herself as a super freak and a freak regularly in the text? Uh, that is something I sort of identified with in a way like after my experience um you feel different you feel like there is a sign above your head you know that says i've been raped you know um i'm i've been raped and you think you just feel so differently about yourself um and like for me i did feel like i was in now a subset of people because I felt people were looking at me differently and judging me differently, even though 99% of them had no idea what I'd been through. You know, so I felt like a bit of an outcast and a bit of a freak um, myself after I went through it. Um, yeah, so for her to describe herself that way, it was kind of like, I felt that kind of feeling. Um so I kind of understand the mentality there to look at yourself introspectively that way. Um, yeah. Seabold uh, does self-reference as a freak, uh, and I believe even a super freak prior to the rape. Uh, important for the memoir, Lucky. But um, 
do you do you remember uh, in the text? So she talks about uh, Father Brenniger. Uh He comes back to talk to her uh, after the rape, and you know she kind of rebuffs him, like I was never all into religion. You're not going to come push all that on me now. Uh, and in the middle of all of that, uh, she talks about his son uh, Paul and how he got into drugs and was doing acid and ended up going and robbing this elderly white woman and stabbing her. Do you remember all of this kind of early in the book? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then when she already mentioned, when she goes uh, with her dad, they're going to go get her sister from UPenn. And she talks about, uh, I guess in the elevator, there's some sort of graffiti uh, about uh, a female student who was gang raped. Uh, and she talks about how this sort of thing happens on some of the campuses and fraternities, uh, presumably this would have to be white students because they don't have ton. They don't allow tons of black students at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, they didn't in 1981 and they still do not in 2022. Um, do you remember that as well? They're talking about the gang rape, sexual assaults at the University of Pennsylvania. OK. Um, do you remember like any posses uh, of violent uh, vigilantes uh, going to get these rapists, gang rapists at the University of Pennsylvania or going to get uh, Paul Bruniger's, uh, get Father Bruniger's son, Paul. Uh, do you remember any uh, gangs going out to get any of the white uh, maldoers in the book, Lucky? No. Me either. Uh, you remember after she sees her rapist allegedly had to talk about that. So she sees her rapist five months after the event, she goes to tell the police and Syracuse security. They go out and they're beating up random black people, shaking them down. Alice Ebo sees us like, Oh man, I don't think that's not the rapist. That's not Gregory Madison. And they're just beating up random black. people. Do you remember that? Yeah. Okay. And then, way later on in the book. So uh, Anthony Broadwater has been convicted and all that. Her roommate, Lila, different white woman, she is allegedly raped and a different group of white people. They get upset. They say it's a black guy, allegedly different group of white guys. They get upset. We're going out. We're looking for them. They say, importantly, they say they took a couple of shots going out to look for him. They said Paul was so angry he couldn't even see straight. Do you remember that part? Yeah. That's what I mean also about this book, I think, is hearkening back to have repeated moments where posse sometimes of armed, drunk white men are out looking for violent retribution against black people. And let me get Denzel one more time. Denzel. We're looking for two Negroes in a white car. Any two will do. You said all black in alike. And you said all in words. That's right. Sure did. Nigga! Repeatedly happens in the book where it's just looking for black people, any black people, any black males for violent retribution. Sometimes it's white people with a badge. Sometimes it's white people without a badge there are white criminals talked about in this book. There are white rapists talked about in this book. There are no white mobs to seek violent retributions for any 
of the white criminals in this book. Like I said, there is a white man who attacks, stabs an elderly white woman. There is no lynch mob for Paul Bruniger. Your thoughts on on that comparison? Because I think that sort of thing would stick out. Most white people, they would pick that up consciously or subconsciously and might even be a part of the appeal of a text like this. Your thoughts, Jody Cook? Um, well, I do agree that subconsciously um, there are elements, you know, where you just look at it and go, oh, you know, maybe that sort of thing happens. But on a conscious level, you do have questions like, well, if you're going after this uh, young black man that's allegedly raped someone, shouldn't you be going after all these other criminals as well? Um, or are the police just not choosing not to focus on them? Um, and that is a question I've had um, in my readings of Lucky, but it's it's gotten worse as I've got older, um, you know, and I've just learned more and grown as a person. I've had more and more questions, uh, not just about this text, but about society in general. Um, yeah, it's, it's just something I look at and I'm like, well, if you're making the obvious reference, these white men are criminals and rapists then you should be devoting the same amount of time and energy to them um, as you would anyone else. I don't think that happens in the system of white supremacy and especially the zeal for violent retribution that seems to be very specific to black males in the system of white supremacy. Uh, and particularly, we're going to go out and get drunk. She said that her roommate, Paul, was so angry he couldn't see straight. But they're going to go out and search for a black person. They didn't even have a description. Who are you looking for? I don't know. Black male. Any will do. Any will do. Context of white supremacy. Lucky. Oof. Um, let's see. I'll see if folks have questions. Uh, folks for the book club should definitely think about some of the things that we talked about over the time of reading uh, Seabold's narrative. Um, you in one of your reviews, uh, the one from 2020, you wrote about the trial experience. You said before the trial. Alice learns that Anthony Broadwater, Gregory Madison, has waived his right to appear at the hearing, meaning they aren't challenging. They aren't challenging the identity, only the motive behind the crime. That was a key point. We talked about that as well. They should have challenged the identification on the stand. Alice has to defend herself to an insane extent as they tried to make out that she couldn't see because her glasses had been knocked off, but she doesn't need them to see up close. Did you think? they were harsh, unduly harsh, uh, with regards to Alice Siebold on the stand from what you read in the book? Uh, in terms of the identification, I think they were focusing on completely the wrong point. Um, her glasses are inconsequential, whether she needs them to see up close or not. Uh, the question I had with the identification was I had serious doubts of whether she would 
actually have been able to identify him at all. Um, because there are several reasons for it. Um, there's a, an element of disassociation that happens during sexual assaults and rapes, um, where you just almost completely disengage from the physical aspect, um, which is something I experienced myself. You kind of just let yourself mentally float away um, so you don't have to focus on what's happening. Uh, which obviously affects memory because you aren't mentally present. And then um, in rapes like the one described in the book where a weapon is used, um, there is something called the weapons focus effect, uh, where when weapons are used in crimes, um, knives, guns, whatever that may be, the majority of your attention is focused on the weapon because that's what can do the harm to you. So if um, a woman like myself was raped at knife point, I could probably tell you a lot of details about the knife, far less about the man or the person holding it. Uh, and that's what I felt they should have focused on in terms of the identification, not whether she could see him, but whether she could actually identify him and remember him. Interesting. Interesting. What what did you mean in your review specifically then when you said on the stand, Siebold has to defend herself to an insane extent? What did you mean when you said that? In the context of the book, when they are questioning her about her uh, ability to see, I thought that was way too over the top. You know, what I mean, um, one or two questions would have been enough to get the same amount of information. Um, so it felt like they were going really over the top with the questioning, um, which didn't sit comfortably with me at all, especially if um, in the context of the book she had actually been raped. Um, you know, you're causing a lot of stress and anxiety um, to the person on the stand. So if that was me. Uh, your stress levels, your anxiety levels would be through the roof anyway. And then constantly being hammered with the same question just phrased in different ways um, that you are answering just seems way too over the top. It seems like overkill. But um, knowing what I know about the psychology um, of being raped from my own experience, they were just focusing on the wrong element altogether. Context of white supremacy, Jody Cook joining us live from the UK uh, would have asked uh, even more questions uh, if uh, he had better attorneys. Maybe we talked about that too. Like he should have got better, better lawyers, uh, Mr. Uh, Broadwater. Oh, well, hindsight. Um, let's see the number I'll give out for folks that they have questions they'd like to ask is 720-716-7300. The code five, six, four, nine, four, three pound press star six, one. If you would like to participate in the book or throughout the book, I'll say it that way. We said, man, like, <sighs> Seabold says she's raped. 
she goes home. She's with her family. She's talking to her parents. And she says, uh, that, you know, do you want something to eat? And she says, uh, sure. The only thing I've had to eat today is crackers and cock. Well, the only thing I've had in my mouth today is crackers and cock. And I'm just like, wow, like this is, I mean, like within hours, from the first like two, three hours of the assault. I'm not a female. I've not been raped, not a victim of sexual assault, but like nothing about that seems funny. And certainly in the immediacy, it doesn't seem funny. And she has these kind of gallows humor, uh, jokes about her rape, even uh, Lila later on in the book, her roommate, a different white woman when she's allegedly raped. And she comes in the first time she sees it. She says, now we really are twins. Uh, she just has lots of comments like that. Where I'm just like, I don't, I wouldn't even talk that way to someone who was a rape victim. I wouldn't want someone talking to me in that flippant a manner. I don't know. How did those, how did her, her attempts at making humor about all of this? How did that land with you, Miss Cook? Um, it was really off the mark. Um, humor in that situation, especially that soon after the fact, just isn't appropriate in any sense. Um, I understand some people uh, can be in a bit of a shocked state um, and haven't really processed what's happened, but to make attempts at humour, even gallows humour, that soon after it happening, um, yeah, just sat really badly with me on a personal level, um, you know, because after my own experiences, I did have people that I knew try and make attempts at humour like that, you know, try and make a, a bit of a joke of it, make light of it so you don't feel as bad as about yourself. Um, that just hit really off the mark for me. Context of white supremacy. Uh, we had a uh, list. I told we had we picked up. There was so much engagement about this case, as there should be. Uh, it reveals so much about the system of white supremacy black misandry so-called black male privilege uh so we had a white man who started listening to the book club as we were going through all of this the cows is explicitly proudly intended for non-white listeners victims of racism but this white man he got interested in the case he started following along with the book he sent in questions he heard we were doing the program today so he had questions uh he said uh, he has questions for you uh, since you indicate that you too are a rape survivor, I would ask her, how soon after your rape did you start with rape jokes? Did you tell them as often as Seabold seems to? Oh, God. The first time I ever made uh, a rape joke um, after my own experience was, must have been three, four years. Um, and even then, it was me making the joke about myself. Um, to very, very close family members. And even then, as soon as I said it, I realized, ooh, that, that's, um, yeah, that's not appropriate. Let's just ignore that and never attempted it again. Hmm. Uh, let's see. What do you think of the book now, knowing that an innocent black male had his life ruined by Alice Siebold and her lies? Well, it's just disgusting, and it's not 
the first case um, that I've been made aware of is similar. Um, there was the Central Park Five, a very similar case, uh, five young black boys accused of raping and assaulting a woman in Central Park. All were convicted, faced prison time because of it. Uh, when the actual rapist uh, was convicted of other crimes, uh, not that one, um, until he met one of the boys in prison and realised he'd been falsely imprisoned and knowing about crimes like that that took place around a similar time frame, um, it feels really disgusting to have read it and enjoyed it the way I did. Um knowing that a lot of cases like this happened um, and that these men have spent decades, in some cases, in prison, um, you know, protesting their innocence and no one's listened to them. People generally do not listen to black males. As I said, Alice Siebold got on Oprah Winfrey to talk bad about Anthony Broadwater and Charlie Rose. This was almost a movie. Whole world was going to hear about no count reaping Anthony Broadwater. Um, this person, uh, he continues. He says the reviewer talking about you and your two separate reviews mentions Seabolt's poem conviction. That's the one we talked about. Uh, she does not go into depth with it. That poem comes off as a rape revenge porn fantasy, cutting out his eyes cutting off his balls and raping him with a knife. This poem says a lot about Seabold and her state of mind. She was not after justice, but vengeance and Mr. Broadwater fit the bill. He was a black male innocently walking down the street, laughing and smiling and had to pay for that. Uh, the reviewer made a point of contrasting the earlier portions of the book, book, uh, sad, lonely virginal Alice and the latter half where she emerges as a heroine. Now that's interesting. Uh, you want to stop, I guess that, that last portion in terms of contrasting the different portions of the book, the first portion where she's, you know, kind of sad and going through the trauma after the rape. And then the last portion where she's partying and having friends over and dating and all the rest of it, doing drugs and such. Yeah, it was, more for me, like um, before uh, the rape and then after the trial, because um, in my own experience, she was very sad, lonely, depressed, anxious after the rape, which is expected. And then after the trial, she sort of emerges as a new person, um, which I also felt like after my rapist was convicted, I felt that I had been freed, in a sense, from the feelings of depression and anxiety and stress that I'd had, um, and that I could move forward, that there was a, a before-rape-me and an after-rape-me. And obviously, in terms of the fact that she thought, um, well, she makes it seem in the book that the real rapist has been convicted for this crime um, and that justice has been done for her but obviously looking at it with light of recent events that isn't the case that she has 
deliberately and maliciously um, made this man out to be something he's not. He's spent a massive proportion of his life behind bars for it. And the fact that if she was actually raped, um, and that if that is fact, that the real rapist is still out there, that would be absolutely terrifying for me. You know what I mean? And she doesn't mention or talk about any of these feelings. Um, and I have so many issues with the way she acted after the trial that I don't even mention it because that would just be an utter rant, not um, a review. But I had so many issues with... Um, well, I agree with the fact that like she had been freed from her constraining feelings, the way she went about acting and conducting herself afterwards just was entirely inappropriate and um, just cruel, in a sense, to other survivors. What do you make of Seabold's uh, claim? She said that... <clears throat> She just wasn't thinking about racism, white supremacy at the time. The, these issues weren't being discussed way back in the early 80s. So uh, she just, you know, a little bit ignorant, just not not aware of these type of uh, dynamics. And Mr. Broadwater and she are both victims in this process. What do you make of that? In terms of the, the racial elements of it, um, I completely disagree with that she was ignorant if you look at other cases, very similar cases that were happening at the time, um, you know, the alleged victims, the police officers, uh, the prosecutors, uh, they were all very aware of their racism um, and using it to put um, black men behind bars um, in a very, very unjust manner when it wasn't warranted. Um, and in terms of... Uh, here as a person, um, she just can't even really put it into words. It makes me very angry thinking about how she's done this um, and how it reflects on actual victims. Um, you know, if she was actually raped, then yes, she's still a victim. Um, you know, something terrible happened to her, but obviously that even that is in question right now. Um, if it is proven she was actually raped, then yes, I would agree she is, in a sense, still a victim. But in terms of this particular case with Anthony Broadwater, she is not the victim here at all. $50 billion. Uh, and... I think he should add Seabold's uh, name to that as well. Like, let me get all of the proceeds from the book, uh, the movie, like speaking engagements, all of that. Like, oof, disgrace on top of disgrace. Um, I, this is, I mean, there's so many key parts in the book, but the one scene where they're trying to bring up like, hey, it's, <laughs> we don't even have tons of black people here. Like you just say it was a black male. Uh Anthony Broadwater's attorney questions her in court. He says today, 
how many black people do you see in the room? Jumping the gun, knowing his insinuation, how many other black people besides the defendant do you see in the room? I answered, none. He laughed and smiled up at the judge, then swept his hand in the direction of Madison, who looked bored. Even that, like, I am on trial for rape. I could be in prison for 25 years. Why on earth would I be bored about these proceedings? Are you serious? No one in this room is going to be more interested than what's happening than I. Anyway, so we'll just take it. Even let me stop. (laughs) So when you read this the first time, that seemed believable that Mr. Madison, a.k.a. Anthony Broadwater, was sitting here at his own trial facing 25 years in prison and he sat looking bored. That seemed believable? It, it didn't seem believable, but it's, um, you got to take into account that the book is being told from her perspective. So for me, it was a question of, well, she may think he looks bored, but he could be so many other things and he's just not showing them, you know what I mean? To, especially if you're um, having these allegations brought against you to look angry or afraid um, could make you seem weak in that setting or solidify what other people perceive as your guilt. So I was like, maybe he's not bored. Maybe he's just holding his emotions in and trying to appear um, more neutral to the situation. Bored black male at his own rape trial. Like, wow. Uh, So let me start over from that paragraph. Uh, Mr. Broadwater's attorney laughed and smiled up at the judge, then swept his hand in the direction of Madison, who looked bored. You see none, Paquette said, emphasizing the last word. She really is quite incredible, he seemed to be saying. I see one black person other than the rest of the people in the room. He smiled in triumph. So did Madison. I wasn't feeling powerful anymore. I was guilty for the race of my rapist. Guilty for the lack of representation of them in the legal profession in the city of Syracuse. Guilty that he was the only black man in the room. One of the best books you've ever read. What did you make of this passage, Miss Cook, uh, and her, I don't even know what you, you call this, her assessment of Mr. Madison being the only black male in the room and this being the defense attorney making a point of this? Knowing um, historical context in my own country and in some other countries around the world, um, you know, it wasn't common. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for trials like this to be all white people from the lawyers to the judge to the jury um, to be all white people because there was a prejudice and racism was everywhere and it still is. Um, so looking at it, I was like, well, Historically, it wouldn't be uncommon for that to be the case. 
Is it right? No. Um, but it wasn't uncommon. And what do you make of her? I don't know her. Uh, describing this as though she is being made guilty uh, as though Mr. Broadwater's attorneys are trying to suggest that she is guilty for this white supremacy racism that results in there being no black prosecutors or no black members of the jury. If we're going to have a black person in the courtroom, they will only be here as a defendant, potential wrongdoer. What do you make of her saying, hey, he's just trying to make this is my fault, like I'm guilty for this. I think it's, I looked at it as not making her as a singular person guilty, but white people as a race. Um, and that they would be completely right in saying that, that it is um, the white supremacy that has led to there being a very small number of you know, black prosecutors black uh, judges and stuff like that, especially in this time period. Um, yeah, it was completely the white supremacy's fault. And if she feels guilty because of that, then it's just showing that she knows that the white supremacy is there and she's doing nothing about it um, and allowing it to happen. I don't think she's uh, this to me just seems like the typical uh, weeping white women. And, oh, you're trying to accuse me of being racist, which wasn't the case at all. Just pointing out, hey, if we're going to say a black person did this crime, it's not like we have a lot of black people to pick from. Uh, we'll just grab the closest black person and call it a day, which maybe is what happened here. But, you know, um, I, I just that whole passage just stuck out as is particularly slimy uh, in a book with a lot of repulsive moments. Um, a white woman, and I don't think that she felt guilty here at all. I think this was just more, you know, woe is me. More of that performance, uh, even hers, because she didn't say she didn't feel privileged anymore. She said she didn't feel powerful anymore. Where they're starting to tug away at, at some of this facade about, you know, this raping beast Negro. Um, speaking of facade, the section where they, uh, she says she sees her black male rapist for the first time. The attack happens May, 1981. Uh, and this is in October. She says she sees him on the street and he's confident. And she alleges that he says, Hey girl, what's up? Don't I know you? And she's like, oh, my goodness, he's so cocky and cocksure of himself walking around campus like he owns everything and he can do all of this. Did that ring true to you when you read that, that a black male in a system of white supremacy 40 years ago could rape a white woman and then proudly in a she says cocky in a cocky manner strut around a predominantly white campus as though he had. Nothing to fear? Did that strike you as believable? Uh, in, in the historical context of what was happening with similar cases at the time, no, it, it wasn't believable. If anything, he probably wouldn't have even looked at it or let alone spoken to it because of the situation um, 
and the experiences that black people were going through at the time, um, he probably would have been very afraid, even if he had done nothing wrong, which he hasn't. He would have been afraid of accusations uh, being made. So it didn't strike me as, you know, even students, uh, which in my experience as a university student can be a little dumb, you know, uh, a bit stupid in their attitude, you know. Um, it just didn't feel right. Hmm. With, uh, incidentally, even before I move on, uh, in subsequent reporting and people being able to just go back and look at the trial transcript, Mr. Broadwater did testify at this trial. He testified. He did say, hey, don't I know you? He wasn't talking to Alice Siebold. He was talking to Officer Clapper, who was, I guess, behind her or whatever in the vicinity. Officer Clapper testified at the trial. He corroborated what Anthony Broadwater said that, oh, yeah, I did know him. I was talking to him. He did say, hey, don't I know you? And I spoke to him and, you know, they had whatever brief conversation. So he wasn't even talking to her. I, or just what is your opinion of that, that this was reported, that this is in the trial transcript? She doesn't. Uh, Alice Siebold, I know it's her memoir, but she totally excludes uh, Anthony Broadwater's testimony, what he said on the trial, and even totally excludes the fact that he disagreed with the identification from the officer. Yeah, once you know that she omitted these details, it does change um, the way you read the book and the way you feel about it. Like, if it had been in there that um, it wasn't talking to her, he talked to someone else, that he argued against the identification um, and that he did actually testify, I probably would have felt very differently about it because there would have been two clear, distinct sides to the story. Uh, but it's deliberately told in a manner that's very one-sided. You know, you've only got her story, her side of things. So without the other half, you can't make many judgments, really. And the ones you can make are obviously going to swing in her favour because hers is the only side you have. Um which is a very poor way of telling a story, especially one that's your own personal story. Um, yeah, it just makes me feel really bad um, knowing that, like, I can say honestly, if his, that those details had been in there, I would have thought, well, you know, he wasn't even speaking to her, so how has she made this connection to him? Um, you know, he argued against the identification. That's something we need to look into, especially when I already had clear doubts and questions about that identification. And then the trial process, having the two sides of the story and being able to look at them and going, well, um, where do details line up? Where do they not line up? It allows you to make more clear, concise judgments on what has actually happened. I see. One of the best books that you've ever read. Um, 
and and as a sex abuse survivor rape survivor how did that land with you in terms of she sees her alleged rapist it's been five months but she says this is him there's a police officer right across the street she can go tell him right now they can snatch him or we can wait go to class talk to your professor and then contact the police and we'll see if we can go get him how did that land with you the fact that she delayed in going to notify enforcement officers it was like if there had been me if I had been in that situation um, and I was just you know I saw a man uh, that I knew in 100% confident surety to be my rapist I wouldn't have waited you know I would have been running over the other side of the street I would have been getting on the nearest phone um, and I would have been saying hey look my rapist is right here I can say 100% this is him come and get him I wouldn't have waited not even five minutes I would have been you know on the nearest phone nearest police officer if there was one around I would have been there Another one of many red flags in the book uh, for us that she did not do that. Again, I'm not a victim of sexual abuse. Uh, I'm not a female, but I mean, man, uh, if someone had done this, if I had a daughter, my mom, if I had a sister, if someone had done this to them and she gave me a photograph, I had any idea of who the person was and <laughs> this is them like immediate not stopping for any reason like immediate it would be right now less enforcement officials whatever it is there's nothing more important in the world but that is not the thinking of Alice Siebold at least not what she wrote in her memoir uh, let's see uh, let me double check make sure I didn't miss folks who dialed in with a question uh, the number 720-716-7300 the code 564-943 pound press star six one if you have a question uh our caller in virginia i can't say the coon man anymore it's now governor youngkin that doesn't even i don't even know what that is like bring back the coon man ralph northam caller in va did you have a question for jody cook joining us live from the uk hello greetings gus greetings to the listeners and greetings miss cook thank you for participating in the broadcast um, here's my question for you. Given what we know now, is it more plausible that Siebold was indeed raped by a white man or not raped at all? What are your thoughts and how do you feel about either one of those possibilities? I would lean towards the fact that she was probably not raped at all and she may have concocted the whole story. Um, but given how much detail um, and in the way I felt it, raw emotion is in that opening segment of the book where she talks about the actual rape itself, um, I would say that if she was raped, she wouldn't have been raped by a stranger. I would have said it was probably someone she knew, um, which presumably given her background, her social circles would have been um, 
a white boy, probably one she went to school with, one she knew pretty well. Thank you for answering. I'll mute. Hmm. One of our uh, listeners in that same vein of that question, be in Santa Rosa, you're up next. You can be prepped. But one of our listeners, he, uh, she, sorry, 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 she said um, in the poem, uh, if they caught you, right, that we talked about, that when she's talking about the uh, genital mutilation that she describes slicing off those red balls and some of our readers were saying hmm now if her perpetrator was a black male he wouldn't have red balls like melanin skin color what would the sack look like it i mean that wouldn't be um what do you think miss cook what do you think about that are we were they misinterpreting or does that seem logical where she talks about slicing off those red balls? Would that be a black male attacker with red balls? I think if she's talking about a um, actual physical, you know, the actual physical testicles of that man, uh, if he was a black man, it wouldn't make sense at all. Um, but obviously there could be some hidden reference or meaning that you put behind putting that specific color in there but for me that would indicate a white man um just purely because i know from myself that if i get hot or stressed my skin turns red um i have a very prominent blush so that would indicate to me if we're talking about a biological physical perspective that that is a white man see as i said be in santa rosa uh if you had a question for jody cook you should be with us yes i do thank you for uh for having me and uh thank you for the caller um my first question was, was pretty much the same thing it was about the uh red balls and do you think she was raped by a white person but the second thing that stuck out to me was her joke she said the only thing she had in her mouth was a cracker and a cot. And in my mind, I turned it around. I was like, oh, my God, was it a white person? Was it a cracker's cot? What do you think of that? Given the terms used towards black men uh, within the book, I think describing a white man as a cracker would make it seem like it was a white man if, if she was using it in that sort of hidden meaning within the word. Um, but she could literally just be referring to food. Um, obviously, these are details we as readers um, don't really know. But the more I've learned about it and thought about it in light of recent events, it does make me believe um, more and more surely that if she was raped at all, it was by a white man. Okay. Um, my next question is, um, did it stick out to you that she saw him in the street and then two days later she couldn't identify him at all? 
did that uh, stick out to you? Yeah, that is one issue I've had with the identification process as a whole, is if she saw him um, and felt with utter certainty that that was the man that raped her, she would have easily been able to pick him out from a lineup. Um, and if he wasn't in that lineup, she would have been able to clearly say, um, the man I saw, the one I pointed out to you, is not in this lineup. Um, which says to me that there was a lot of doubt um, and that she may have just looked at him and gone, yeah, that's him. But then when confronted with men of similar looks, um, she couldn't pick out any distinguishing features other than the colour of his skin, which meant she wouldn't have been able to identify him. Um, so it says to me that in the entire identification process, she wasn't certain by any stretch of the imagination that that man actually raped her. Because if she was, she would have had no issue in picking him out of a lineup or identifying him in any process. Okay. Um, during your situation, did you talk to everybody you met about being raped, the way I was able to talk to everyone about it? Uh, no, I didn't. I spoke primarily to close family members. Um, you know, my mum, my dad, my siblings uh, were made aware of the situation. I didn't even talk in depth with folks to them. It was just the fact that uh, I have been raped by someone. Um, that thing has happened and we're going to have to deal with this as a family. They weren't privy to any uh, of the gory details of what happens to me. And when I did discuss it in depth, it was with the people I trusted the most. Um, because obviously it's very personal, very private information that I didn't want spread around uh, my school and people who lived in the area. I wanted it kept as private as possible. So for her to be openly discussing this with everyone she's meeting, it says that either she's not taking the event seriously um, or that she's trying to make her story as believable as she can by convincing as many people as she can that she was actually raped. Mm, uh, Gus, did you give her the uh, article about white people um, not being pained about black people? Nope, I switched up to ask about who was more confused about racism. Oh, okay. Uh, that'll be it. Hmm. Much obliged being Santa Rosa. I guess we could do that. Uh, there's a uh, non-white author, Miss Cook. Uh, he wrote a report uh, about racism, and within that report he said that uh, white people are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism, but rarely are they pained enough. And we've been asking our white guests uh, for a few years now, uh, your time on the planet, uh, talking to other white people, family members. You said you've talked to them about race issues before racism. Uh, do you think a significant number of people 
who are classified as white are sincerely and greatly pained by Anthony Broadwater racism white supremacy being completely honest I don't think they are purely because to be pained in that way you have to have experienced something similar and most if not all white people will go their entire lives um, completely ignorant to racism because they don't experience it in the same way so I think for him to say you know uh, white people are pained um, I think they are pained but not in the sense of to him it's to them, they feel pained because um, they may see themselves as being made out to be the bad guy in the situation. But I don't think they genuinely feel any sort of pain for him as a person. I guess let me make sure I um, processed your answer correctly, Miss Cook. Uh, are you saying that you don't think white people, yourself included, uh, are generally pained about the terrorism abuse of black people, non-white people, that if they are pained in this process, it is pained about being labeled as a racist, pained uh, about being identified as a perpetrator? in all of this, not pain because we feel bad about Anthony Broadwater, Stephen Lawrence, black people being victims of racism. Is that, am I accurately kind of reinterpreting what you said? Just from my personal experience, like I know when I watch the news or anything like that, um, in my country anyway, there's not a lot that's actually broadcast towards, you know, um, things dealing with racism or classism or sexism, uh, it tends to be pushed back. It, you know, we know it's there, but just don't look at it um, kind of mentality. Um, like the first real experience I had um, as an adult with any sort of things like that was when um, there were Black Lives Matter marches in the UK and I genuinely had, um, like, I knew what Black Lives Matter was, but I was like, is is this a British thing? Is it an us thing? I genuinely had no clue. I had to go to my university campus and ask um, black students. And I was like, I, I don't understand. Can you please tell me what all this is about? Because I have never been taught it. I had never been spoken to about it. Um, not by my teachers, my family. It's just never discussed in uh, an all-white household. You know, it's because we don't experience it personally. We feel like, oh, well, if it doesn't directly affect us, then we don't need to do anything about it. And I believe that is the mentality for a lot of white people. Um, you know, my parents 
included when it was on the news in the UK, um, they had very old-fashioned views. Um, and it wasn't until I went to university and I was introduced to a more diverse culture of people that I realized that these things actually happen. It's not just on the news in some faraway place. It happens on your doorstep, you know what I mean? And we all just turn the blind eye to it because that is what we are taught to do. When you say uh, your parents have kind of old-fashioned attitudes, uh, are you talking about white supremacy, racism, how they feel about black people? If so, can we get kind of some more detail about your parents' attitudes on racism, non-white people, black people specifically? It's not um, black people specifically. It was just a kind of thing of, of this isn't normally what happens in our country. We'd normally associate these kind of uh, protests and marches as an American thing. Um, so they didn't understand like why they were happening in the UK um, and what the meaning was behind them um, because it was never discussed even on the news. It was like, oh, these um, protests and marches are happening. Um, but they never spoke really in depth about why they were happening or um, any of the reasoning behind it. It was just like, oh, look, they're happening. Um, that's all we're going to tell you. So my parents were like, oh, this is a, an American thing. You know, um, why is it here? What is it? Um, and it wasn't something I could even sit down with them and say, oh, well, it's this or that, because I genuinely didn't understand until I went away. And then I came back and I was like, oh, you know, it's, um, you know, and I had to sort of educate them um, on what I had been educated on through friends and other students I'd met at university who were very open in allowing me that information when I say to them, you know, I, I genuinely just don't understand. Can you please tell me? I see. I see. One thing, this is um, more, I guess, for non-white people anywhere in the known universe who might be listening. This is a great illustration. Racism is a global problem. It is not just in the U.S. Uh, they're having these marches and Black Lives Matter so-called uh, in the UK, Stephen Lawrence, uh, I guess we'll see. So I asked Emmett Till before, is the name Stephen Lawrence familiar? I don't think Stephen Lawrence is familiar to me, but I will be the first to say I don't um, follow a lot of TV or I'm not really a wide presence on the internet outside of my blog, um, which is Probably one of the reasons for my ignorance, I just don't follow a lot of stuff. Um, but, yeah, not many names are sounding familiar to me. Uh, from a UK perspective, I haven't heard them. I see, I see. Uh, Stephen Lawrence, a uh, black male teenager, was uh, stabbed to death killed by a gang of racist thugs, not in America, but in the streets of London. 
a very famous case. Nelson Mandela even got involved with that. We were lucky to have his mother uh, as a guest on the program, uh, Mrs. Doreen Lawrence, uh, two times. But uh, just not just Emmett Hill, global system can be very dangerous being classified as a black male anywhere in the known universe. Uh, but just the experience, that's something that I hear individuals classified as white all over the known universe. Again, say that. I just want to emphasize for non-white people, victims of racism, white people don't have to experience the effects of white supremacy racism to be informed about how racism works, nor do they have to know about the experience of racism to produce justice? That's something that gets brought up all the time. And just white people cannot be ignorant about the mechanics, what white supremacy racism is and how it works. The mechanics of whether it's Stephen Lawrence, how do you have a gang of white thugs go out and kill a black teenager for no reason and then nobody's punished for years or across the pond. How do we lock up a black male who's totally innocent, lock him up for nearly 20 years? No restitution or compensation for that at all. It's been 40 years. We still haven't. They know they're not ignorant about how to do that on a group level worldwide. They don't have to know what it feels like to experience all of that, even though many times White people end up doing a lot of the work on who is Stephen Lawrence, who is Anthony. I told you, uh, Mr. Musianti is working on the documentary. He is classified as white. They end up being the ones who research and give us all this information uh, with the lack of emotion. I just thought that was something that was really important as well. You talked about how you felt the book, Alice Bold, It's written with a lack of emotion. I think that poem is pretty emotional. I mean, you're talking about chopping off someone's penis and slicing out their eyeballs and all the rest of it, sodomizing them with a knife. I think that's kind of emotional. Uh, and in writing, you're going to die. She said she wrote that on her body when she went to court to testify against uh, Mr. Broadwater. Um, I guess what what can you kind of explain help us help us grasp what you meant by you said you you felt like she kind of told the book with a kind of blunt lack of emotion in her narrative um it's not devoid of emotion it's just a lack of range so for me when i was going through my experience there was yes there was sadness and there was anger but there was also a lot of bonding moments um so because of what happened to me and what i went through i became a lot closer to my mother and my siblings and there were small moments of happiness and joy and yes they were overshadowed by these larger darker emotions but there was so much that i was feeling um during that time but the way um, Alice Subbald writes it, it just comes across as one flat line of a singular emotion, which for me is anger. So a lot of anger within the book, a lot of hatred. Um, you know, the desire for vengeance is linked to those emotions. There's nothing else 
um, when from a personal perspective for me and other people I know that have been through rape and sexual abuse um, and sexual assault, there is a whole myriad, a kaleidoscope of emotions you go through on a daily basis sometimes. You know, you can wake up feeling, oh, today's a good day. Ten minutes later, you're sobbing your eyes out, you're angry, you're lashing out. You're just going through so much and processing through so much. And lucky it's just completely devoid of that. It's just one flat, continuous emotion of anger throughout that made it feel just like this when you go through this sort of situation you're just going to feel this one thing and that's never going to change and that isn't the case context of white supremacy uh dread 138 was going to narrate lucky for us but then we got the whole audiobook with alice Bold reading her own work so his efforts were not needed uh dread 138 if you had a question we had a number of folks who volunteered to narrate but dread 138 if you uh had a question for jody cook you should be with us good evening can i be heard yes sir Good evening, Gus. Good evening, Miss Cook. Good evening, listeners and uh, participants. Uh, Miss Cook, will you now re- revisit your review given the current developments related to the case um, with Mr. Broadwater? Oh, I will definitely be revisiting both the book um, and after um, this interview today, I'll be going away and reading a lot more into the actual original trial process um, and his exoneration um, and just filling myself in on all the key facts that I failed to do so in my previous readings. Um, And hopefully within the next couple of weeks, I will have uh, a new review up with my thoughts and feelings on the book uh, with all this new information. And I will be educating my readers on what has actually gone on on behind the scenes um, and the actual facts of the case that we are now aware of and um, that are just completely omitted from the book itself. Thank you for that. Uh, the second question. Um, um, several instances of uh, questions of uh, Ms. Siebel's account was of events had occurred in the book, in her own book, from Detective Lawrence's suspicions to the grand, just grand jurors do questions regarding uh, Broadwater's Madison's identification. How do you uh, process that? Uh, in light of recent events, the just the feelings I have on the book are very tainted and as I said the information is very one-sided so it makes me uh, very hesitant now going into a new reading to accept anything at face value and it will a lot of the information obviously now we know that Anthony Broadwater has been exonerated I can just completely disregard as being fact when we know that's false. Um, 
so the processing is still happening for me, obviously, because I've only recently, very recently learned of these events. So the processing for me right now, it's still happening, but it's very tainted from what I was originally led to believe the book was um, and accepted the book to be. Have you um, read her other book, the uh, uh, the lovely the lovely bones? Yes, I've read both the lovely Bo- bones and the almost moon. Um, yeah, I've read both of them, um, and I will obviously. Uh, I think I'm going to go back and reread those as well, with a new perspective on questioning. Um, the information she presents, because uh, I believe she labels the almost moon as semi-autobiographical, um, and the lovely bones is obviously completely fictional. But knowing her to be uh, a person who can falsely accuse and convict a man for a crime that she knows he didn't commit, um, I will be questioning many of her thought processes and feelings behind her her other books. One last question on you. Um, Contrasting The Lovely Bones with um, Lucky, the family dynamic is quite different where the father is quite uh, in The Lovely Bones. The father in the Lovely Bones is quite possessed with finding justice for his daughter, whereas in Lucky, the father was a little bit disconnected, if, I, if that's the proper term. How do you, how do you process that, um, that contrast, Melvin? Thank you. Uh the contrast doesn't seem as extreme for me because I experienced it with my own parents. So during my own um, case, my mother was extremely determined. Um, you know, she fought everything uh, as hard as she could because she felt that was her way of protecting me. And um, that was just my mother's mentality. My father, on the other hand, was very withdrawn, content to sit back and watch the events play out um, because that was just his way of dealing with it, was to withdraw and to process. Um, So that doesn't seem as extreme for me, but I do see uh, a major contrast in tone um, and the way that similar events, uh, you know, the rape of a young woman, although the uh, young girl in The Lovely Bones is killed, um, is very different in The Lovely Bones. Um, you know, it's it feels more heartfelt, more sympathetic, whereas Lucky just doesn't have that. Um, but the family dynamics, well, yes, they are different. They didn't seem as extreme a contrast for me as they might do for others. Much obliged. Dread138. Uh, I have a 
compensatory investment request. Uh, and this one is detailed, so I'll make sure I read it slow. Uh, and then I'll make sure everybody's satisfied. We might have uh, got all our questions, be good for the broadcast. So my compensatory investment request, uh, Ms. Cook, and this is a doozy because, I mean, hey, Anthony Broadwater. So number one, I request that you, on your blog, uh, on the two posts that you have, really, all of the posts, because you have a review for Almost Moon, Lucky, you have two separate reviews for Lucky and The Lovely Bones. My request is that you put a link on all of those reviews and any subsequent posts that you do pertaining to Alice Seabold, Anthony Broadwater, this case, post a link to our book club sessions. We did seven sessions where we read the whole book uh, with Alice Seabold doing the narration, and we did the entirety, including the 2017 edition with the new afterward where she talks about the election of president Trump. And she still manages to mention a few times even way back. So this is, she's writing this in 2017. So it's been 36 years. And in the full, which she's still talking about, you know, 36 years ago, I was a virgin. So that's one, uh, any current posts, subsequent posts, a link to our seven sessions on Alice Bold's Lucky, because I think both you and any of your listeners would learn a lot listening to that session and being able to hear her narrate her own uh, book. Uh, we included some of the uh, interviews from Anthony Broadwater and even some of Alice Seabold's interviews talking about this book, which I think are interesting as well. So that's one. Two, uh, include this broadcast as well. So our book club, as well as our discussion this evening on the text, when you link to all of your posts on Miss Seabold, current posts, and any subsequent writings on Alice Seabold. Three, link to Anthony Broadwater's GoFundMe. This should be like posted all of the posts that you currently have, any new posts, link, and you personally invest in Anthony Broder's GoFundMe. I'll send you the link. This is one. It doesn't really matter. I wouldn't care if you told us that you were a peasant and you had exactly one euro to your name. I would say, well, you should get half to Anthony Broadwater because you wrote those reviews, in my opinion, that is contributing to white supremacy, racism, black misandry and the abuse of Anthony Broadwater. You should invest and I'm requesting that you get an additional 16 white people. That's one white person for every year to also invest. And like I said, it should be substantial. It shouldn't just be, oh, we'll give them one euro. Like 16 years and a registered sex offender, all based on a book that you thought was one of the best ever. And it seems like this might just be a pile of white supremacy, racism and lies. That is the request, so I'll itemize again. Lengthy, but I mean really, 16 years. Uh, so linking to all seven programs that we did on the book study of Lucky, our broadcast for today. Also linking Mr. Broadwater's GoFundMe page, 
on your sites, all the pages where Alice Siebold is mentioned currently, anything subsequently, uh, having the GoFundMe there, uh, and you investing in Mr. Broadwater's GoFundMe, and then you also getting 16 white people, one for each year, to invest in his GoFundMe. This is one until it's done. If it takes you a year, if it takes two years, whatever, the least we can do from Mr. Broadwater. So all of that, is that something that you are willing to do? My compensatory investment request, Ms. Cook. Yes, that all seems reasonable and it's needed. Awesome. I will make sure to, I've sent it out before, but I'm proud to send it out as many times as I can. Mr. Broadwater's GoFundMe, and I'll make sure I send it directly to you. I'll make sure you have all of the links for everything that I just mentioned uh, so that you can do so. And then folks can go check to make sure that she does all of this. And she said she'd be willing to do so and that it's important to do. Uh, one thing I guess I'll ask, uh, I've seen some white people. They glow. They said the same thing that you did. This is one of the best books I've ever read. Everyone should read this book, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Then once all these details came out, what? Anthony Broadwater. Oh, my God. They just threw Alice Siebold under the bus and said, oh, my goodness. She's a no count liar and we're kicking her out of the club and she's not cool anymore, which, you know, whatever. But I mean, a million copies of this book were sold and it seems like a million people came to the same conclusion that you did. Something needs to be said about that. I mean, we could talk about Alice Siebold and yeah, she lied and long tradition of that. But I mean, whoa, whoa, whoa. You read this book. You read that tacky explanation about the identification at the lineup. They knew each other. They tricked me. Got his friend to come in here. Look, that is tacky lame racist nonsense today 10 years ago 100 years ago 500 years ago there is no way a reasonable logical person can read that or many other components to this book and not have some serious questions that is way more important and in my opinion should take up way more of your focus why did I Jody Cook read this here book two times and ask no questions. I just accepted all that. Yep. Rape and Anthony brought it. Yep. That's what it, that should be more of the focus. Why did so many white people read this goofy lying book and not ask one question? In fact, we didn't even rate it as just a mediocre memoir worthy of forgetting. We said this is amazing. This is the best thing she's ever written and one of the best things I've ever read. That I think focusing on your own personal connection to this book, even beyond the rape, that would reveal a lot more about the system of white supremacy, racism, and why this problem is so hard to honestly address and solve. Do you have thoughts of that? And is, is that something that you can do? Cause I, I don't really think we need to write any more posts. So we just kick and talk bad about Alice Siebel. It should be. Why did we swallow this hook line and sinker so willingly to write two reviews when it's nothing but racism and lies. Yes, that that is something I will be discussing. Um, obviously, when I update my thoughts on the book and the situation, that is going to be one of the key things. It's not going to be about, you know, if she lied or not, because we can see she did. 
from the fact that he was exonerated. Um, it's going to be, why did I read it? Not once, but twice. And even though I had questions, why didn't I look into them? Why didn't I, you know, focus more of my attentions on, you know, this doesn't feel quite right or that doesn't seem quite right and yet still did nothing um, and just accepted what she wrote. Um, and I will be putting that to my readers and being like, if you have read this book or you do intend to read it for whatever reason, then ask a lot of questions because there's a lot of questions to be asked about Bucky. Mm. You can tell us now, and I mean, that's an easier position to say that you had some questions before about it, but you wrote two reviews on this book and none of your alleged questions are in those reviews about the inappropriate jokes uh, about her use of the term Negro. None of that. You had two chances. None of that's in the reviews. That's what I mean about, Hey, if we want to stay, start critiquing someone, let's start at home. We can leave Alice Ebo totally alone and just talk about me and why I left all of this out and shield for her and put links up to Amazon so she could make a few more nickels talking bad about this black male and says it's one of the best books ever and wrote reviews for all of her other books. That right there, I'm calling that out. That right there, conduct by white women like Miss and say it twice. Conduct by white women like Miss Cook. That right there huge aspect of white supremacy racism as a global system. Uh, am I being logical and honest, Miss Cook, or if you don't agree? Oh, yeah, I, okay. I, I completely agree with you. Let's see. Uh, did we miss anybody? Any folks? Question? They need to get in before we call it a broadcast. Miss Cook is actually, let me see if I get my, my math on, 3.30 a.m. in the U.K., any other folks question they need to get in before we roll be in Santa Rosa uh, yeah I have one let's hear it hello can I be heard yes sir yes sir um, number one um, from the beginning of the book she talked about leaving a kegger now do you think she was raped there or had, had rough sex there but then blame it on a black person that could entirely be the case. Um, I know a few girls personally um, that have done that or um, have had sex with a guy, um, you know, just for whatever reason and then claimed afterwards that it was rape when at the time it was a completely consensual act. That could entirely be the case. Um, and it is very plausible. And uh, next question, uh, do white women fantasize about being raped by black people? There are people that do. Um, me personally, that's not something I've ever done. Um, obviously, I haven't experienced it myself. Um, but I know the harsh realities of it. Um, and if someone says to me, oh, you know, um, I fantasize about being raped or, um, you know, without 
sent or whatever, I always tell them, you know, I've been through that. That's not something um, you really want to advertise um, because it might happen. Um, you know, it's just don't do it. Still, I know the, the realities of having to go through that and live through that and not just the act itself, having to go into relationships and having to preface them with, you know, this has happened to me. I have uh, emotional and psychological scars left by it. Um, it's just, no, <laughs> just don't. You know, it's just not something, even if it's in fantasy, if it's in passing, just don't ever, ever attempt to formax or talk about stuff like that unless you're 100% sure the person you're talking to is someone, you know, um, that you either trust with your life or that they haven't been through anything like that because it can be extremely triggering um, for people like me. Um, last question. Um, do you think Alice Bo's book promotes racism, white supremacy? Uh, definitely in Lucky, yes. There are also um, quite a few racial undertones in uh, Almost Moon. Um, I wouldn't say as much in The Lovely Bones, um, but I think it may just be here as an author. Um, and that does definitely come across in her work. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not familiar. Uh, Almost Moon is the book that I'm least familiar with of Alice Seabold. That was the one that I found out about like last. Uh, what are the racial aspects of Almost Moon? Um, the way it's written, it's semi-autobiographical and it focuses mainly around a relationship with her mother. Um, obviously, uh, the character that's meant to be Alice uh, in this is an adult. Uh, I think she's in her 30s or her 40s. It's been quite a while since I read it. Um, and she has numerous conversations with her mother about her life, um, including she mentions uh, things that have happened in the past to her. And um, there are, in my opinion, there is some commentary in there that is not favorable, not just racism, there's uh, classist undertones, um, and there's a lot of sexist undertones as well. Um, and it's why uh, out of the three, Almost Win is my uh, least enjoyable of the three, because it just seems like one big commentary on society. Um, and while that does work in a lot of cases, uh, it's almost like she's pushing her own agenda through these characters and some fictional events, some factual events um, for her life, although I don't know how much of the factual elements are accurate, um, given things that have come to light recently, uh, which is why I said I will be looking into all three of them. Um, especially the memoir and the semi-autobiographical novel, um, 
that she has written. Let's see. Uh, our caller, 2262. 2262, did you have a question for Jody Cook? May I be hurt? Yes, sir. Thank you for taking my call, Gus, and greeted everybody online. And thank you for um, coming to the cows, Ms. Cook. My question for you is, do you think that a book like this where the victim was a black female and the uh, victimizer was a white man can sell over a million copies? Honestly, um, I genuinely believe given uh, the books I've read uh, with similar themes and tones, I don't think it would have sold as well the other way around. Um, and that's mainly to do with the publishing industry and society and the, the demand for these types of books. Um, but, yeah, honestly, I don't think it would have sold as well. But if there is one out there, I would genuinely like to read it. I have another question. You said you don't think it would have sold as well. Could it be due to the fact that for a long time and till today, uh, black females have a hard time if they're accusing a white man of rape? Oh, yes, that would definitely be a massive reason. Um, and then I also think that certain industries, including publishing, are the majority of the history and even today a lot of them are still dominated by white people uh they are run by white people um so obviously they get the final say on what they do and don't take on um and they just may see uh, a book like lucky where the uh victim uh see that in quotation marks uh is like themselves so white um, but I genuinely believe that it, we do need more diverse literature, especially dealing with heavier topics um, like rape, um, that it just needs to be more diverse because it's not a race thing. It can happen to anyone. Any woman on the planet can be raped. And we need to see ourselves represented in literature, Um which for the majority of the history has been white dominated. I have a final question. Uh, do you think um, black males can be victims of rape by white women? Um, the legal definition there makes it a bit difficult to answer yes or no. Um, but Yes, I believe men can be raped just the same way women can, um, although the legal definition is contrary to that. Um, but that's a, a legal thing, not a belief thing. I believe men can be raped just like women can, and they are. Men do suffer sexual assault and sexual abuse and rape. Um and they, they're just not heard as much as women are. And that is absolutely appalling. Um, 
because at the end of the day, anyone could be raped, man, woman, um, you know, no matter what their color or creed, uh, you can be abused and assaulted and everyone should have a fair and equal representation, whether that's in literature, in the news, um, everyone needs to be fair and equally represented and they're just not being, that's just not being done. Thank you for taking my call, Gus. Thank you, Ms. Cook. I'll get my line. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, let's see. Thomas in New York, did you have a question for Jody Cook before we get ready to wrap things up? Um, good evening. Yes, I did uh, have a couple questions. Um, Ms. Cook, um, one of the things you said was interesting. Um, and one of your answers this evening, you said... Um, um, white people were ignorant about racism. I, I just wanted to get a time frame on when did this ignorance start? Uh, roundabout time frame. Um, well, I, I couldn't give you an exact time frame, but history dates that society uh, has been predominantly dominated by white people. Um, and because we've dominated society, um, we've just been ignorant to people, um, people of color, and we just don't see um, their issues as our issues when we should. At the end of the day, it's we're all people, you know, we're all human. We all live on this planet. Why should we view other people's issues is less than ours just because we don't share the same race that is yeah, a right i'm not talking about that i'm talking about a time period like it couldn't have been um during slavery because obviously everyone would see slaves uh, it could have been during the 60s because black people were being hosed down on tv like what period of time did white people all of a sudden become ignorant to racism uh, I couldn't tell you a specific time period. Um, I genuinely think that ignorance has always been there. Um, and we have allowed, we have been allowed, um, we have allowed ourselves to be ignorant and maintain that ignorance throughout time, um, which can be seen. Um, and that it needs to change drastically. Um, because you know, being ignorant of the problem and the issues um, doesn't make, doesn't um, diminish your responsibility in those issues. Okay. Um, in your experience, who's more dedicated to practicing racism, white men or white women? I can't say whether men or women are more racist, um, but in terms of people that I've met that I would label as racist, um, more of them have been men. But obviously I'm working from a very small sample of people, of the people I've met and interacted with. Um, but it you could just, be... You just said um, women are more racist. What did you mean by that? Um, well, like, I, if I met someone... Um, well, people I have met and that I've 
clearly define them as racist from what they've said or things they've done, um, the majority of those people have been men, but there have been a fair few number of women as well. Um, but obviously my sample size that I'm working from is very limited. So I couldn't say um, with any certainty whether white men or white women are more racist. Um, Oh, did that answer your question, Thomas in New York? Um, I had one more question, but I think she um got cut off. No, I'm still here. Oh, okay. Cool. Oh, okay. Um, my my last question. I, well, first, are you a feminist? I wouldn't identify myself as a feminist. Um, I've never really attached any uh, anything like that to myself. Okay, oh, you said no. Um, you're in Europe, though, right? Or you're European? In my opinion, I wouldn't say that I was a feminist, no. Okay, are you in Europe? Are you a European? Uh, I'm from the UK, so I'm British. Okay, British. Um, I guess it's a difference to you guys. Well, okay, uh, with the current situation um, in Europe, uh, with the conflict, um, per se, World War was to break to, to break out. Um, do you think that women should be put on the front lines to fight with the men and drafted? And I yes. my line. Yes, I think it should. As long as you're fit and able-bodied, myself included, you should be drafted. Whether you're a man or woman, if you're fit and able, then I don't see any reason why you shouldn't be just because you're a woman. Mm. I'm in agreement. Put those white women out there uh, on the front line. Alice Ebo looks fit. She could pick. And matter of fact, Anthony Broadwater, Alice Ebo sat there and told all those nonsense lies and practiced racism about. Uh, Anthony Broadwater having a criminal record and all the rest of it. Anthony Broadwater is a veteran. She didn't even include that in the book. No, I was completely unaware of that myself. Disgraceful through and through. Like I said, she lied and said he has a criminal record, which he does not. She could at least add it. Oh, wow. Really? A U.S. Marine raped me? Really? disgraceful through and through maybe you can even check and see who is Emmett Till when you yes. go to do your reassessment um, I will be doing a lot of research after this before I get into having to sit down and reread it uh, and put all my new thoughts together I will be doing a lot of research into the actual facts and everything behind the scenes hmm much obliged. Uh, I learned so much. I'm hoping, in fact, I uh, maybe I can send you this link so you can add it. We have been in contact with uh, 
Mr. Musianti, he's working on the documentary Unlucky uh, with Anthony Broadwater to tell their story. If we can get Mr. Broadwater on the program, like, oh, man, uh, a billion questions. Like, he is probably be the person I'd be most excited to speak with since I don't know when, but hopefully we can get him on the program and just chat it up about his experience. He, In fact, he said, he said so many things, but he said, I'll give you two quick before we let you go. It's almost 4 a.m. The one he said, he deliberately, he did not have children. He served 16 years, was out of prison in time that he could have had children, but he didn't. And he said he didn't because who wants to have a black child and explain all this? Why is your dad a registered sex offender and a convicted rapist? Who wants to have to explain all that? He also said he likes having a job in the evenings because that way he has proof of where he has been so he can't be accused of raping someone. The immediate or the first statement about him not having children, we had folks who said, man, that's like genocide. Like, my God, yes, yes. That was more like immediately stunning speechless I don't even know what to say how do you even con- that's what 50 billion dollars and Alice Siebold all the proceeds just fork them over but that second statement I always like having a job in the evening that way I have proof of my whereabouts so I'm not accused of a crime what type of existence is that I'm just hoping I can I'm sorry Miss Cook go ahead it isn't an existence to live like that. To constantly live your life thinking, I've got to be able to prove where I am every second of every day. That's no life for anyone. Oh, God. One of the best books, Jody Cook ever read incidentally I said at the conclusion this is the worst book I've ever read uh, by the time we got to the end now the racism that you know over the hump but even if we put that to the side which is impossible like I just don't see what like I said consistently what is the purpose of this book if it's not racism this is not an engaging story she doesn't have great you know it's not a great narrative. It's nothing about her that's, you know, special that would really tie me to her. Like I'm cheering her on. Like it's nothing but racism in this text that would pull me to it. Like if it's, if it's not the racism that pulls you to this book, I have no idea like how you're engaged and you know, how you could feel excited or enthused about this text at all. She's talking about sodomizing a black male with a knife. I mean, what in the way, unless that's your cup of tea. I think for me uh, personally and the people I know that have read it, for us as survivors of sexual assault and rape, it was seeing, you know, someone who is famous, is a big name, um, admitting, you know, I've also gone through this um, and this is my experience and that's what drew us to it. It was, we're going to see ourselves be represented um, in a way we haven't seen before, not in a fictional sense. This is a real person that has been through this. Um, 
and it's talking about it honestly and that's what drew me to the book and that's the way it was presented to me um but obviously that is not the case um and I won't just be writing a reveal about it. I will be speaking in person to a lot of people I know that have read it um, and telling them a lot of the stuff that I've learned and I will be learning when I do more research about the case um, and saying, look, is this really, you know, what is this to us now um, as fellow survivors? You know what I mean? It's, insulting at best to other rape survivors. Context of white supremacy. Uh, I did mention Danielle McGuire's book at the dark end of the road uh, about the history of black females being raped uh, and how that led to or influenced greatly the civil rights movement. Talked about that Rosa Park even mentioned there long history but we will be eagerly awaiting uh the new posts uh at for the novel lovers dot wordpress dot com uh we will be checking out uh to see what jody cook uh writes after she's done some new researching and reviewing uh certainly to see make sure that we have the links for the book club uh maybe some of the folks can get a new perspective hearing what we had to say about Alice Siebold's memoir and hearing her read her own work which was fascinating in and of itself uh and that documentary I cannot wait it's titled Unlucky I don't know when it's going to be out but I will be there with my popcorn and highlighter and notes uh and hoping that we can get Mr. Broadwater on the program to discuss it but it has been a hoot I was so excited uh grateful that we got a chance to talk to some of the folks who a million copies sold no questions asked but a million copies sold and lots of folks glowing about this here book of racism and lies uh we have been chatting it up with uh jody cook joining us live from the uk uh very early uh women's history month already for her over there uh in march one Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Uh, I will send you the links, Mr. Broadwater's GoFundMe page and all the rest of it so that you can uh, attach it to your site. And I will be eagerly awaiting uh, your future writings and what have you. As I said, some personal reflection like, wow, how did I, Jody Cook, not my white privilege, but my own personal white supremacy racism and glowing about this book and not asking critical questions of Alice Siebold. We will be eagerly awaiting and we will probably comment once it gets posted so we'll be looking out thank you so much for sharing some of your uh what is it tuesday morning yeah tuesday morning with us miss cook uh, thank you for having me on you know, um just hearing about some of the stuff you've learned and you've researched has been very eye-opening and i have a lot to look into and to think about um before i obviously put my updated thoughts uh, on Lucky and Alice Subbles up. Um, yeah, thank you. Emmett Till, Emmett Till. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your time and uh, we'll be looking out for the blog. Enjoy your morning and we will speak soon. Thank you, thank you. Context of white supremacy, global system. I didn't even know that 
uh, Miss Cook was in a different part of the world until way down the road. Like I had emailed her and then she wrote me back and we were setting up the program time and everything. And then she said, oh, yeah, that's going to be one in the morning for me. And I was like, what? What? You're in the, oh, OK, that's crazy. Like, but you know, global system reading about raping black males like Anthony Broadwater all over the world. I wasn't even thinking about that. when We got this goofy book uh, at the beginning that really they're reading about this in Bucharest, the Ukraine. Korea, UK, that's what they're reading about, raping black males. Yes, that's what they're doing, reading about raping black males all over the world. That's what we're doing. Ready to getting ready for the movie. We would have been getting ready to get set. Get our popcorn, or I guess Netflix streaming for Anthony Broadwater, Gregory Madison, raping on the silver screen. We almost did our three hours. Anybody have a comment they need to get in before we wrap things up? Everybody satisfied? Nothing they need to get in? We will assume folks are satisfied for the day. Oh, did that mean? Maybe I might. We'll double check, make sure I didn't block their ability to share. Everybody satisfied? I have one. I had one more question for her. Um... As a white woman in the UK, um, what do you get out of this book about black people? That was my last mm. question I had for. I wonder what I you think, think about that. Oh, she's still with us. Maybe you can get an answer. Is that you still with oh, us, Miss Cook? Oh, oh yes, I was still listening. <laughs> um. For me personally, um, I always looked at it as the fact that this was one white woman, one black man. That's not a reflection on everyone. Um, but the connotations that people will take away are very negative. Um, and I obviously will be mentioning in my subsequent review that this is not the way... Um, to be discussing these issues. Doing it and Alice Sebold is very much in the wrong for the way she's gone about um, profiting off this man's um, pain and suffering. Um, and that will be a point I will be getting across. Bonus question answered. Gotta love it. Much obliged being Santa Rosa and uh, Jody Cook hanging in with us. Make sure we get everybody's question answered. Um, if anything, reading more important than watching television. Uh, if we have any cows listeners, if you didn't uh, read Lucky, it is in the archive, so you can feel free to go back uh, and check it out. You can hear uh, our discussion just not that long ago here. <laughs> How does Rick James even factor into all of this? Uh, but feel free to go back and check reading way more important than watching television. Critical questions being asked while you read as well and not just accepting everything as truth. Uh, with that, 
soon we got everybody much obliged for uh, folks tuning in with their questions comments hope it was worthy of your guess uh tuesday morning monday evening wherever you happen to be at uh minimum will be here on wednesday for the book club 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific our normal broadcast time uh feel free to drop an email if you have questions or concerns until justice at gmail.com uh, if you are out and about sobriety with the best under conditions of white supremacy that is anywhere in the world. So many of these rapes that Siebel talked about were at parties with lots of drinking and keggers and all the rest. Uh, if you're out and about someone is being hostile and rowdy exit. Uh, this is not a time for confrontations with strangers in public. You should be thinking that that person may be armed. They may have an entire armed Entourage talked about those violent posses, right? Uh, if you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die, exit. Live to see another day. Call enforcement officials and what have you as you are vacating the area. Uh, if you're in a vehicle, you're sober, you're buckled up, you are not on the cell phone. Just trying to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in no name calling nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother you're a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning Mm -hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.